Uh, if you have your Bibles, you can open them up to Matthew chapter 1. It's interesting, uh, as Jeff was talking uh, and reading scripture there uh, in our men's Bible study this week, we encountered that word, wonderful, uh, wonderful counselor. And uh, I had never really looked into this and somebody brought it to my attention that uh, that word wonderful doesn't mean, uh, you know, oh, really great or oh, really significant, although those things are included. It means incomprehensible, beyond our understanding. How funny that God is a counselor, one who gives understanding, who himself is beyond our understanding, right? And so I'm really, I'm really grateful uh, for that. And so thank you both for, uh, for reading that passage for us. Um, I want to talk to you about the human tendency to create categories of people. So categorizing is labeling a group of people and rejecting the individuals in that group based on the label, right? When we use categorizing as a, as a human means of operating, we like to create categories. So we have reasons to justify ourselves and kind of writing off that group of people. So for example, millennials, right? We have a, a title, a, a, a word that we have made up called millennials. And I am one, so I get to talk about us. Uh, but when I see characteristics that I don't like from people in my generation, I engage that label as an explanation, as a reason to write others in my generation off. Or boomers. No, I'm just kidding. I'm not going <laughs> to... I'll get myself in trouble if I go too far on that one. How about Xers? Xers, you are forever destined to be the forgotten generation. We're not going to talk that much about you, so that's fine. Uh, and, then, uh, and then my favorite label, Canadians. I like to categorize Canadians. I have a pastor friend of mine. His name is Craig. And if I need a reason to ignore him or not listen to him, I just remember that he's Canadian. And then I can just, just move right on. So, uh, so we do this, right? We fall into this trap of categorizing. Throughout human history... We have written off people based on where they're born, what shade their skin is, their socioeconomic status, their level of education, their worldview or their way of thinking, the amount of power they hold, their profession. And this is the demonic lie that we've given into. Like human history is about human beings using our influence to create categories that enable us to reject others and consider them to be something less than fully human. Right? God has, for what it's worth, set out to put an end to that way of operating. So, uh, so we are continuing our Advent series, Unlikely Story. In this series, we are considering kind of all of world history and the incredibly unexpected nature that, that uh, happens in the story of Jesus. Right? Because Jesus' story happens in the middle of world history. There's a timeline of events that led to his birth. And what's interesting is Matthew, the guy who wrote this gospel that we're looking at, he wrote this story about Jesus' life. And in telling us about the Messiah, about Jesus, he tells us about Jesus' family tree. He provides a genealogy. And he does this, and it's very unexpected the way that he does it. He does so in a way that actually defies our human tendencies to create categories. And so in this genealogy, Matthew shows us that God, he defies our standard of operating, that he works outside of what we would typically expect. And the reason he does that is so that we might take notice of how he is utterly different than anything else that we've ever encountered. 
So Matthew, he has some unexpected things that he wants us to take notice of in this genealogy. So in Matthew 1.1, it says, The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Now we did look at this last week, uh, but for just a bit of a refresher, we have this word Christ, uh, and that's not Jesus' name, but it's his title. It's translated from the Hebrew. The Hebrew word is Messiah. So Christ is Messiah, but what it means is it's God's chosen king who brings salvation. That's what Christ means, God's chosen king who brings salvation. Salvation implies that there is something that people need saving from. And Messiah comes not just as savior of a few people, or not just as savior of a perhaps category of people, but as savior of the world. Full of people who walk in darkness, people who are in rebellion against their creator, people who are contending against one another, And so this uh, title Christ, we talked about this, that it it means that it's saying that there's a problem and God has chosen someone to solve the problem. So last week we looked in detail at, uh, at Abraham and David and some pieces of their family trees. And we learned kind of the unexpected inclusion of those people into this story because we looked significantly and Matthew himself highlighted their failures for us. The places where they had fallen short. And today, I want to invite us to to pay attention to a couple of people who were from categories that people who Matthew was writing to, you would have expected those people to write people in these categories off. These individuals would be included in this very Jewish genealogy and their inclusion in this very Jewish genealogy is unexpected and it forecasts something of the nature of the salvation that Jesus was going to bring so verse 5 of Matthew chapter 1 says this there's a right in the middle of the genealogy Matthew says talks to us about Solomon the father of Boaz by Rahab and Boaz the father of Obed by Ruth and Obed the father of Jesse So a few things to note about Rahab and Ruth. Number one, in Matthew's culture, it is not common to see women mentioned in genealogies. It just does not fit. We mostly hear about the men. This means that if Matthew is writing women into the genealogies, his purpose is to catch our attention. He's telling us something. He's saying, hey, look here, I have something to say. The second thing, is that our expectation in a Jewish genealogy about a Jewish Messiah is that we would read about very Jewish people, but Ruth and Rahab are not Jewish. They are born as members of different nations, different ethnic groups. And then the third thing to note is that both of these women came out of a category of people that God had condemned. Ruth was a Moabite, and Rahab was a prostitute from Jericho, a place that God had commanded his people to utterly destroy. So in every way, Matthew is doing something specific for us by highlighting these two women. He's catching our attention. He's saying, here, look, I have something to say, and that should cause us to ask some questions. Like, why are two non-Jewish women in this list about the ancestors of a Jewish Messiah? Why are two women of we might even say anti-Jewish descent existing in this list. 
So this is what we're going to do this morning. We're going to look at both Ruth and Rahab and what was unique about them. Because Matthew, he's trying to make a point with this genealogy. And the point is actually one that impacted his life in a very personal and radical way. So uh, let's look at Rahab. So when the people of Israel, they were going into the land that God had promised them, they were given a command by God to utterly destroy the people who are in that land because what had happened is the people who were in that land had given themselves over to every kind of vile practice. Like we, uh, the things that they did and said are unspeakable for us to, to be able to talk about, the extent of those things. They participated in human sacrifice. Right? They oppressed and tortured the weak. They took advantage of the vulnerable. And so God was sending his people into the land to give his people this land, but to also utterly destroy the people that were currently in that land as an act of justice against the violence that they had been doing for hundreds of years. So Jericho was one of the first places that God's people had to come up against as they were going into the land. It was a fortified city. Israel had sent uh, spies into Jericho to kind of scope things out. And those spies in this city end up at the house of Rahab. Now, uh, for what it's worth, Rahab is probably not her name. It's more descriptive of her profession, right? That word, I I mean, if you look at other places, that word is easily connected to, to prostitution, right? She's a prostitute. Rahab welcomed these spies as they're uh, going through the city. She welcomed them into her house. She protected them. And when the Jericho messengers came knocking on the door to see where the spies, that they, they, they knew people were watching. They knew that spies had come in, that people had come into Rahab's house that they didn't recognize. So they came, they're like, who, where are these people? We're looking to find them. Rahab said, oh, they went off that way. You should go that way. You should go follow them while they were hiding in her house. She protected them at great risk to her own life for what it's worth. Why did she do this? Well, she had heard stories about the things that Yahweh was able to do, the things that God had accomplished. And she says the nations are melting because of their fear of you. And she says, I'm better off like supporting you and empowering you and believing that your God is more powerful than I am being afraid of these messengers and of the people in my city. She trusted God. She was actually, because of her fear of God, she knew it was safer to honor him and his people than to offer them up. And so, so what does God do? Well, God provides a way then for Rahab. Because she expressed this hospitality to his people, she provides a way, or God provides a way for Rahab to be saved. And Rahab gets categorized in two ways that, let's say, are unseemly for us, right? She's a prostitute, and she's a Canaanite, meaning she lives in Jericho. She is a false worshiper. But let's say it another way. She's a reject. Right? By the world's standards, by the standards of God's law, and by moral standards, and by association standards, like everything about Rahab says that she is not blessed by God. But God himself would beg to differ 
on this issue, right? In the letter to the Hebrews, uh, written about 25 years after Jesus rose from the dead, this letter says this, Hebrews eleven thirty one. By faith, Rahab the prostitute did not perish with those who were disobedient because she had given a friendly welcome to the spies. Right here, she gets listed alongside the great heroes of the faith. That's what Hebrews 11 is all about, the great heroes of the faith. She gets listed alongside them. Why? Because she had faith. Because she gave God the place of highest honor. And so the thing that I want us to pick up on here, the thing that I want us to take note of, is that God honors rejected people who have faith. He honors rejected people who have faith. Right? Her, God's blessing is not bound by categories. And because of her faith, her trust, her belief that God was more powerful than all of the other gods and all of the other nations that were surrounding her, because of her belief in God, God welcomed her into his family. She became a Jewish person. She became, uh, her family were welcomed in as Israelites after Jericho was conquered. And her name ends up in, written into the ancestry of the Savior of the world. Okay, so now let's talk about Ruth. We're actually going to look at Ruth's story. If you want to turn to the book of Ruth, I would invite you to. Also, we've included in your bulletins the passage for today. So if you have that, you could also just simply pull that out if you wanted to follow along with me. But in Ruth chapter 1, verses 1 through 4, this is what it says. It says, In the days... When the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land, and a man of Bethlehem and Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. So verse 2, the name of the man was Elimelech, and the name of his wife, Naomi, and the names of his two sons were Malon and Kilian, and they were Ephrathites from Bethlehem and Judah. They went into the country of Moab. And remain there. So, for what it's worth, they have now left the territory of Israel and went into the territory of Moab, these Jewish people. And verse 3 Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died, and she was with her two sons. So, verse 4 these, her two sons, took Moabite wives. The name of one was Orpah, and the name of the other was Ruth. So, Naomi was an Israelite. Ruth. Naomi's daughter-in-law was a Moabite, not an Israelite. Okay, so meaning that Naomi's son broke God's law by marrying a non-Israelite. And on top of that, for what it's worth, God did not have a very generous heart toward the Moabites. Deuteronomy 23, 3 and 4 says this. Now, now, Moabites are not Canaanites, right? They're not inside the land, they're outside of the land. But God still has a concern with the Moabites. Verse 3, no Ammonite or Moabite may enter the assembly of the Lord. I just want to let you know what God is saying. Literally, any other person of any other nation could walk through Israel and decide, you know what, I want to be an Israelite. And God said, there's a way for that person to become an Israelite. But God says, every nation, every ethnicity of any part of the world could do this. Not Moabites and not Ammonites. They're left out. Why? Okay. Even to the 10th generation, mind you, none of them may enter the assembly of the Lord 
forever. Verse four, because they did not meet you with bread and water on the way when you came out of Egypt. And because they hired against you Balaam, the son of Beor from Pethor of Mesopotamia to curse you. Right, so, so there are two counts against Moab. Right? Moab, number one, did not express hospitality to Israel as they made their way through Moab to the promised land. The second thing, though, to take note of is that Moab actually wanted to destroy Israel. They hired Balaam to curse Israel. Balaam was a prophet, and they regarded Balaam as having spiritual power. And Balaam came to curse Israel. Of course, when he spoke, spoke curses, uh, God made it so that his curses turned into blessings upon Israel. So, so God held this vendetta against Moab and said that while Israel generally could welcome any kind of foreigners, they could not welcome into their midst Moabites. God said, keep the Moabites out. Okay, so uh, picking up on this theme then, Psalm 108, 9 says this. Verse 9 says, Moab is my wash basin. Now, I don't know if you know what a wash basin is. It's a toilet. Moab is my toilet. That's what God said. And upon Edom, I cast my shoe. And if you understand cultural context at all, you know, God, like throwing your shoe at somebody is about the most insulting thing that you could do. Over Philistia, I shout triumph. So God did not hold this neighboring nation to Israel in very high regard. In every way, Ruth existed in a category of people who were enemies of God. Right? Enemies of his own people. And they had earned God's disdain. But I want you to keep reading Ruth's story with me. Verse 5. And both Malon and Kilian died, so that the woman Naomi was left without her two sons and without her husband. So now the Israelite that Ruth had married was dead. And Naomi, her mother-in-law, had no family left to care for her. And so after this, what Naomi does is she speaks to both of her daughters-in-law, and she says to them, go back to your country, right? Go find a, a husband for yourself in your own place. But I want you to look at how Ruth responds to Naomi. I want you to see something about Ruth's character here too. Verse 16, it says, but Ruth said, do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go. Where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people, my people. Your God, my God. Ruth took responsibility for Naomi like she was her family. She adopted every part of Naomi's life. Right? She recognized the desperate situation that Naomi was in, and she loved Naomi and clung to her. In fact, uh, if you read the, the passage, uh, there's this Hebrew word, hesed. Hesed almost always speaks of God's like never-ending, always-pursuing uh, love for us. His steadfast love. His love that does not waver. In this passage, that word is applied to Ruth and the love that she has for Naomi. And so she decides, I'm going to make Naomi's God my God, Yahweh. And so Moab might not have been hospitable to Israel, but Ruth herself showed hospitality to a desperate Israelite. And this woman whose ethnic origin would have caused her to be considered not only like 
overlooked by God, but despised by God, rejected. God grafts her into his family. And her name is remembered forever as an ancestor of the Savior of the world. And so the theme holds true that we saw earlier. God honors rejected people who have faith. That's what he does. Okay, so this and this genealogy, it leads us to Jesus' birth. And so back in Matthew chapter 1, Matthew is he, he's doing what he's doing. He's doing so many things to help us see the story that God has been writing throughout the ages to bring about the Messiah. So last week we saw, you know, hey, God, you know who he includes in his family? He includes failures. This week, we see that God, he includes rejects in his family. I want you to know, like, so for what it's worth, Ruth and Rahab, they are not the only women listed in this genealogy. There are a total of five women listed in this genealogy. Tamar, Ruth, Rahab, Bathsheba, Uriah's wife, and Mary. Can I tell you things that they all had in common? First of all, they are women, right? We've covered that. Women had a considerably low place in society. A woman's name in a genealogy would be considered unimportant. And so that means that they would have been in this category of what we might consider cultural rejection. They were culturally rejected. Second, they are, each of them, associated with stories or reputations, whether or not those reputations are true or false. They are associated with stories or reputations of sexual scandal. And so they were considered morally rejected, every one of them. Third, except for Mary, every one of these women was not born an Israelite. Every woman that is mentioned in the, in the genealogy is a woman who is not an Israelite except for Mary. So they were considered to be then ethnically rejected. And to top it all off, it's interesting. There are other women in Jesus's storyline. Right? Uh, in fact, there are incredibly upstanding women in Jesus' storyline that we could have heard about people such as Rebecca or Sarah or Abigail. But Matthew makes a point of highlighting these women who have stories of rejection. Like, it's as if he's trying to highlight the fact that rejected people have been included. You see, this, this introduction, if you read a genealogy, like the way that we interact with genealogies, it feels very, like, heady and intellectual to us. Like, why, like why put that kind of energy into it? But I can tell you something. This genealogy for Matthew, this introduction, this is an introduction to Matthew telling his perspective, his story about what he saw in Jesus. This genealogy to Matthew is deeply personal. Because Matthew had experienced firsthand that Jesus is the Savior of the world who extended welcome to rejects. Right? Who was Matthew? Matthew was a tax collector. He worked for the Roman government. He worked for the Roman government to force his fellow Jews to pay taxes to Rome. So from the Jewish perspective... Matthew actively participated in the oppression of his fellow people. That's the way Jews saw Matthew. But Jesus, 
comes to Matthew and says, hey, I'd like to invite you to follow me. And in fact, in one of the first interactions that we see between Jesus and Matthew, Jesus goes to Matthew's house. So just listen to this story. We're not going to put it on the screen, but I just want you to listen to the story and the people that Jesus associates with in this story. As Jesus passed on from there, he saw a man called Matthew sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And so Matthew arose and followed him. And so then Jesus went to his house. And as Jesus reclined at the table in his house, behold, many tax collectors and many sinners came and were reclining with Jesus and the disciples. And when the Pharisees saw this, they said to the disciples, why does your teacher eat with rejects, with tax collectors and sinners? But when he heard it, he said, this is Jesus. Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick, go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. For I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. You see, when Matthew writes Jesus' genealogy down, he sees his own story and the story that God has been writing throughout the ages. Right? He tells us about Rahab and Ruth and Tamar and Mary and says God was doing there what he had been planning to do all along through the Savior, inviting in and welcoming in the rejects. You see, we create categories. We create categories to develop ways to make ourselves feel safe and to reject others and to fight against God and to fight against others. And Jesus, what he does is he come in, comes in and breaks down the dividing wall of hostility. Right? He is the Prince of Peace. He goes to the enemies of God and says, you're invited. Trust me. Believe in me. So uh, the main point for us from all of this this morning is that the primary category that matters to God is faith. Okay, so what? So what? Number one is a question. And then a response to the answer to that question. Who are you categorizing and rejecting? Be intentional to create space for them. Right? This is such a normal human way of operating. And because we know it's wrong, we have a really hard time admitting when we actually participate in doing this. Right? But we do it. I guarantee you, every person in this room will be able to put their finger on one place in which you find a way to categorize people so that you cannot deal with them. Right? If we really watch our hearts towards certain people, we do this. So the question is not a matter of whether you're, you do it. The question is a matter of who you do it to. Who do you make most of your assumptions about? 
Who are you least likely to give your time and attention to? So historically, in the culture that we live in, these things have been things like uh, skin color or ethnicity. These things have been socioeconomic status. This has been national origin. And there's some of that to watch out for. But we've also, like, we live in a time and place where we have been, quote, educated to know that those things are wrong. And so we find other ways to do it, right? So if that's not, if it's not like immediately obvious to you who you are prone to reject, I would just encourage you not to think along the typical lines, right? You could be prone to reject, uh, reject people who act a certain way or have certain mannerisms, right? It could be a particular kind of person who really gets on your nerves, right? It could be because of the way that they talk or the way that they dress, and you categorize them, and you use the category as an excuse not to welcome them, or not to include them, or as a way to avoid them. And I'd invite you to consider the fact that you may actually be missing out on the most fruitful ministry you've ever had in your life because you're choosing to reject people instead of welcome them. Right? A chief principle in coming to Jesus is that our previous categories become unimportant to our identity, and our new category is the significant thing that matters. Galatians 3, 26 through 28 says this, For in Christ you all are sons, children of God through faith. For as many of you were baptized into Christ, have put on Christ. So verse 28, there is neither Jew or Greek, There is neither slave or free. There is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. If you believe in Jesus, you have been placed into a new category. You have a new identity. And now you relate to others primarily based on the new identity and the new category that you have been placed into. Uh, so, So what number two? We were all categorically rejected by God until we met Jesus. Right? I'm not up here to say that like God is always accepting of all people no matter what. The call to include and invite many regardless of category does not remove the reality that God still has a standard, right? The point is not that he's accepting of people from any category, no matter what. The point is that he's inviting people from every category to repentance and faith in Jesus. So 1 Corinthians 6, 9 through 11, it says, Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. You want categories? God has categories, right? He says, here they are. And then he says, and such were some of you. But you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. 
Right? He is gracious. He is loving. He is extending welcome to all people. He extends forgiveness and cleansing. But his welcome is not an invitation for you to keep living the life that you think you ought to live. His invitation is an invitation to let somebody else live his life through you. That's the invitation that he is extending. And do you know why the rejected are the kind of people most likely to respond to that invitation? Because they've lived in this world long enough to know that this world does not have much for them. But Jesus is offering them something that nobody in this world has ever offered them. And such were some of you. He says, trust me, turn to me, give your life to me, and I will give you life and hope and peace. I will give you love and welcome and identity as a child of my kingdom. And so if you're here this morning and if you haven't surrendered your life to Jesus, what's, what's holding you up? What's, what's standing between you and that? From his perspective, there's nothing. You could say today, you could say right now, Jesus, I'm ready. I surrender to you. Would you fill me? I believe you. I want to follow you. You say that to him today, you are, you are with him. That is faith. Right? And you can start following him and you can be invited into this family. You can be a part of the story that he has been writing throughout the ages. Would you pray with me, please? Lord Jesus, you, I think it's amazing that you were not doing a new thing when you came. When you revealed the Father's heart to welcome in those who were far off. Or that this, that this, the whole time was the Father's plan. And so I thank you for showing us that. I thank you uh, for the tenderness of your love. I thank you for the ways that you drew near to me and welcomed me into your family. Thank you for the many in this room who have known what it means that you accept those who have been rejected. And Father, I pray that um, that, that would not just be a static truth for us but that the reality of what we have been welcomed in from would drive us to be those who extend your welcome to others. Lord, and as I sit here and pray this morning, I recognize myself as a failure to extend that welcome in the way that you're always calling me to. So Lord, I lean on your grace and I ask for the eyes to see those who are easily overlooked and rejected that I might extend to them the same welcome that you've extended to me. And I pray that for the people in this room as well. That we would be people who extend generous hospitality for the sake of inviting people to repentance and faith in you. Thank you, Jesus. Would you continue to be lifted up here this morning in our worship? I pray this in Jesus' name.